Either Schwitzer? Oh, yeah. It's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five. Four. We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. How are you, Paul? Great, thank you, Peter. Great to be here this afternoon. Yeah, and today we're going to talk about property because we've been lucky enough to get uh, that real estate guru, John McGrath, from McGrath Estate Agents. She's going to join us on the program to talk about what's going on with house prices right now. Should we be afraid or uh, should we be just a little bit uh, a little bit concerned? Well, it's a big topic, Peter, because there's been so much scary stuff about what's going on in the property market. Yeah. I mean, I know the figures point to a little bit of flattening and we've seen uh, through the auction results, uh, which are a, sort of a guide to demand, I guess also supply, but we've seen... Uh, clearance rates uh, have fallen a little bit, but lots of scary headlines. Mm. And uh, interesting to know whether John actually thinks we're yeah. we're in sort of this property Armageddon. I don't think so, but he's so close. Let's find out what uh, yeah. John McGrath has to Just say. Just find out what the guy at the coalface is finding about house prices right now. Uh, we'll also then look at um, the story around on the weekend that people with granny flats might end up with a capital gains tax bill when they come to sell their principal mm-hmm. property, Paul. So let's talk to David Giles from um, MoneyWise Accountants, uh, and we'll talk to him about you know, other end-of-year tax tips as well. But that, I think, might shock a few people, that capital gains tax on a granny flat. Could be. Uh, granny flats, of course, it's a popular thing these days. Particularly if you've got a bit of extra land to think about whether you can... Uh, sneak in a little addition yeah. to your property but uh, got some tax issues and of course uh, that also relates to uh, the end of financial year Peter which is just looming well it's just really four sleep well five sleeps to go depending how you count them so I know some people, probably David's pretty excited. We'll find out. All accountants, they get very excited this time of year. So let's kick off with the interview with John McGrath. John, thanks for joining us. Hey, Peter. Hey, Paul. All right, mate, let's kick off with, let's go around the country and give us your take on the various real estate markets that McGrath operates in. Well, obviously, Peter, Sydney and Melbourne affect a a large part of Australia. That's where 60% of Australia's wealth is in those cities. And those markets have been on a tremendous growth curve over the last uh, really six or seven years predominantly. And we've seen that come to what what I'm referring to as a soft landing at the moment. I think we've seen a few percent pullback in the last 12 months, and it wouldn't surprise me if we might see another few percent pullback going forward for the next 12 months. But that's in some pockets. I mean, in each of those cities... And certainly in Victoria, New South Wales, there's a, such a large number of different markets. It's not easy to uh, so give a comment that covers all markets. But I think Sydney and Melbourne have sort of come off their peaks and they're settling into a new uh, um, new price range. Um, Brisbane, southeast Queensland, we've been very bullish for a long time. It's been a little bit longer coming than we thought, but there's continued growth, especially in the uh, southeast Queensland corridor from Gold Coast up to Sunshine Coast. Um, so that market's good. Adelaide's quite strong. Peter Hobart going well. Perth obviously has still got its issues, and I think that'll be there for some time until we get some uh, bounce back in the resources uh, sector. But generally speaking, I think Australia, compared to other parts of the world, is in fairly good shape. So, John, a lot of um, sort of negative commentary out there at the moment, but 
Just taking what you said and also looking uh, what happens historically, which it tends to be that the markets uh, go, have pretty strong four or five years and then sit pretty quietly for uh, the next sort of few years. Is that what you think we're just seeing? The softness is just more a, you know, the market goes a little quiet and become more a buyer's market? Yeah, it is, Paul. I think right now you might call it a buyer's market because we're right in that correction period. So I think, you know, the last six months and perhaps the next six to 12 months, there will be some good buying opportunities. And then I think we will see it settling into a sort of a, a more of a plateauing area for a few years to come. I actually think it's very healthy. I was getting quite concerned, you know, this time last mm-hmm. year when prices were going double digit year after year after year. And that clearly was unsustainable at some point. And I think we, you know, it's easy to see now in hindsight we reached that point last year um, so I think it's a very healthy thing for the overall market uh, for most people you know someone said to me the other day gee you know I'm miss selling at the peak and I said well four years ago your property was worth 70% less so you still picked up the majority of that growth you might have missed the last five percent but I think that's a sensible period right now so I think it gives sellers and buyers a little bit more of a predictable platform. One of the reasons that a lot of people weren't selling where we saw a severe contraction in listings is no one wanted to be caught out of the market. Everyone was scared of selling, not being able to buy, and then 6-12 months later they find themselves priced out of their own market. So I think it's actually a healthier area going forward. I'm not a believer though in the, you know, haven't been ever in this uh, sort of dramatic headline that we see as markets correct that you know Sydney and Melbourne are going to implode and we're going to see 30-40%. There's just too many of the key underlying factors that hold our markets in good stead that remain. I mean, basically, we're an undersupply of stock. We've got a relatively strong economy. We've got a relatively strong immigration at the moment. Um, investors are still there, uh, albeit in a slightly smaller pared-back uh, number than they were sort of a year or two ago. So I think the drivers are pretty good. I don't think there's any need for anyone to panic. I think buyers are getting a, an opportunity to jump into the market where a lot of them couldn't get in 12 months ago. So I don't think it's too bad a time at all. John, I know you're a very young man compared to me, but uh, you uh, <laughs> would have remember you would have remembered the 1990 recession where unemployment got to 10.4 percent. What was the price impact? Which in those days, I think you were specifically working in Sydney, but Sydney had, had a had a nice boom before then. Tell us what kind of price pullback you saw during that time. Also, Peter, we, you know, you, we both remember when interest rates are up at 17, 18% for borrowing. So, I mean, there's been a few periods in the last 30 or 40 years since I've been in property that have been, I think, much scarier than now. And, and you know, we, we did see prices come back when, at though when those things were impacting, we saw 20, 25% pullback. Uh, and if you look even more recently in the GFC up in the Gold Coast, which in the Gold Coast is a market heavy on discretionary spending, where we saw prices come back 40% there. So there's no doubt that there are going to be some pockets that um, do get hit harder than others. And, and it's been well documented on some of the areas of potential oversupply of apartments in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. And, and I think there are a few small pockets and I think... There will be examples of some of those property prices where people bought last year, they've overgeared themselves, they've got to get out quickly, and they'll take a 20 or 25% reduction. But that, to me, that doesn't mean that's where the market is. That just means there will be some 
opportunities for buyers and there'll be some unfortunate circumstances for a few sellers. But overall, if you look at the market, most people hold property for a decade. Those that bought in even late last year at the peak, you know, most of them aren't intending to sell for another cycle, another 10 years. So as long as interest rates, I mean, interest rates are an interesting thing. You know, there's been a lot of talk recently about interest-only rates, you know, of course, coming off and contracting. Uh, I think, you know, as long as interest rates stay at close to these figures, which are historically low but seem to be settling in around these, fig- the, these levels, I think that'll be important. But if we saw a spike in interest rates, uh, if we saw macro impact on the economy, something that was happening globally, as we saw in the GFC, you know, we might um, have a look at a different prediction. But right now, with all the factors we've got in front of us, I could see perhaps Sydney and Melbourne coming back a third to five percent. But that'd be about it. John, maybe we can uh, take that on board and uh, ask you to be a bit more granular now about the different parts of the markets you like, and uh, perhaps get you to start with Sydney and then Melbourne. Where where are some of the the suburbs or areas or parts of the market you think are going to do well over the next uh, 12 to 24 months? Yeah. Well, Paul, look, I, I think in general, the, the inner city rings in both of those markets will, will hold up very, very well. And there has been talk of uh, inner city apartments in Melbourne, especially the Docklands have been well highlighted. And again, I think you know we'll see perhaps there some property prices fall in the very, very short term. Um, but investors that are in for long term, it should be fine. But I think going forward, the superstar cities, which are Sydney and Melbourne, in terms of, you know, where the bulk of the overseas immigration and wealth is coming into this country, you know, people generally, when they coming from other parts of the world and they're investing in these markets, they want to be closer to the CBD as opposed to further out. So I think the the inner ring areas in both of those will continue to hold up well. Um, uh, so they would be cer- certainly two areas that, that I'd be encouraging people that are taking a medium long-term view in the market to you know, just look for the opportunities. If you see a situation where someone's over, over-geared, over-borrowed and, and they've got to buy in a good location and there's a 15% discount available, I think you could snap that up just like you can in the share market when, it, when you have bad days or, or a correction in the market. So yeah, I think in terms of those two cities, if we look at Brisbane again, you know, we we think that the the CBD and the river, you know, are the equivalent of Sydney and Sydney CBD and the beaches. So I think anywhere you can buy around those riverside suburbs, close to the city again, is going to be great growth into the future. Um, and and even uh, some of the areas close to the big cities, I think, Paul, going forward, you're going to find areas like Geelong and Wollongong, and even the Gold Coast areas that are. Uh, great lifestyle, easy commute into the big cities, um, and easy transportation. Uh, I think are going to be really attractive as well as a lot of baby boomers say, "Hey, I've got a house in Sydney worth two million dollars that uh, perhaps I've had for thirty years and I paid next to nothing. I really haven't got a lot of cash left, but I'm happy to move to Wollongong, Central Coast, Central Coast, another area we're very bullish on. Um, you know, buy a property there for seven fifty and have the uh, the balance left to help the kids get a deposit and perhaps." have a better lifestyle and invest in some other uh, external assets. So mm. I do think not only in the big cities, Paul, but I think some of the surrounding satellite cities are going to re- really be beneficiaries of the big property price increases we've seen in the last six or seven years. Yeah, John, I was talking to somebody recently, and as you know, everybody in the eastern suburbs of Sydney are experts when it comes to property. <laughs> and uh, and this guy so was welcome saying... Welcome to my world. <laughs> this guy was saying that he was told that... At the higher end, say over four million dollar properties, they're holding up pretty well. But uh, around the million dollar mark, he was talking about a guy who um, had an apartment. I think it was in Edgecliff Road, uh, probably Bellara mm-hmm. or Edgecliff, 
um, had bought it for a, a million or so and had to recently sell it for about 800000 about 200000 less than what he expected to get. Is this something that you're seeing? Peter, not as a trend. That, I think that probably falls in the category that I described as some opportunities where people have overgeared themselves and they have to get out and they have a very tight timeline and they've got to just take whatever they can get. Um, I, I certainly agree with the first comment about the top end of the market, and let's call that in, in Sydney and Melbourne, you know, 3 or $4 million and upwards in terms of the exclusive property. That seems to be holding up well, but it's fair to say there's a very small turnover in that end of the market. So it's not like the sort of median property prices where there's high volume. At the top end, there's really a handful of sales. But you know, we did a number of sales recently on the, uh, through the lower North Shore through our offices over at Mossman, and they were very healthy prices, and, and I'm talking about in the last 60 days. Mm. So I think you know the top end is is pretty good. A lot of people that are doing well in their businesses and in, in their careers, you know, I, I think are seeing the low interest rates and a little pause in the market, a good time to jump in. Um, but the bottom end, again, I'm not seeing anywhere near like that 20% example there. You know, we're seeing people that might have um, been offered 1.2 million last year and the offers are now coming in at 1.1 million and they've got to make a decision if they want to take the new price. And this is, I guess, for, for our industry, one of the challenges that when you're in a, a time in the market where it's turning right now, so if, you know, five minutes ago you're offered a price and then now the market's saying 5% less. For a lot of people that's hard to kind of get their head around. They've theoretically just lost 100000 Um But then again, their property was probably worth seven or $800,000 five years ago, so they've actually done very, very well. So, you know, I, I think generally speaking, you know, I think a 5%, if you like, said, look, 5% correction in the market, you'd capture 95% of the market would fall into that range at the moment. So, John, the general take I get from you is coming very much to the inner city areas of uh, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, and also some of the growth corridors, Central Coast, Wollongong, Geelong, I think you mentioned, also even the Gold Coast. One area that has done phenomenally well over the last couple of years has been Hobart, I guess, because it was the cheapest in Australia. Is that a market where you'd sort of be uh, just be a little bit cautious on now, or do you think that uh, it's just a question of the, the price there is still attractive to people? Oh, Paul, I think it's still attractive. I think that a lot of people, um, especially the baby boomer demographic, they see the opportunity to buy into Hobart, as an example, um, at much reduced, you know, we're talking significantly lower numbers than Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane. Um, and, and a lot of people, they, they, they're finding it's a really changing lifestyle there. And, and uh, you know, there was once upon a time where Brisbane and Hobart were a long, long way behind, you know, perhaps the social and, and uh, arts and cultural um, pursuits that you get in Sydney and Melbourne, but I think things are changing and I think that, you know, all the big cities around Australia are providing great lifestyles and yet they're all at very different pricing at the moment and, and you could almost put Adelaide in that significantly above Hobart but also materially below Melbourne and Sydney. So I, I think that that'll continue. I don't think it's it's a speculative market there. I think it's more of a, a generational move and investors saying, well, where can I find um, money? In Sydney nowadays, you're, you're talking about seven fifty, eight hundred thousand dollars for a one-bedroom apartment mm. and a lot of people either A, can't afford it or B, even if they can't afford it, just see that's a price that they're not prepared to pay. So they're looking for a bit of value. And I think now courtesy of the internet and the ability to really research other markets um, and get a good degree of information fairly readily, I think people are seeing Hobart is, is a good market to invest in. So look, I don't think it's ever going to show the sort of long-term returns that Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane will, but I think it is a really great value market either for people looking for a sea change or perhaps a tree change 
um, or people looking to buy in uh, investment at, at sort of three, four hundred thousand dollar mark. I think you could either look at Hobart, or again, you could look at areas like Wollongong and Central Coast, and say, well, you know, it's only a short way from Sydney, and hopefully getting closer and closer with infrastructure. So uh, I, I think there are. I wouldn't say bargains out there necessarily, Paul, but I think there are areas where you can invest in, take a long-term view and really make some good money now. One last thing, John. I've been interviewing you, I guess, since 1994. Um, That's 22 years. And I've never heard you once say that someone might sell their house for $2 million and then buy someplace cheaper, have more money left over to help the kids with their deposits. That, that, this is a, is this it's a, a generational new, thing, Pete. This is it. <laughs> well, look, you know, I, I think we've seen a lot of stories in the media lately where kids have been staying at home until they're, you know, late 20s, early 30s because they simply can't afford mm. to buy something uh, or even nowadays to rent in some of the inner city regions. And, and I do think now you've got a very wealthy generation, the baby boomers who have done well themselves, but they've often inherited assets from their parents that are, are now very, very um, expensive. And, uh, you know, we again, we've talked a lot about Sydney in this podcast, but if you just look at, you know, an average inner, inner median suburb of Sydney, 10 kilometres out now for a nice three-bedroom cottage, you're probably looking at two, two and a half million dollars. Mm. Um, and a lot of people look at that and their kids just can't get in. So they're saying, well, we don't need the four bedrooms anymore. We may as well downsize. And a lot of them are looking for a warmer climate if they're going north. And they're saying, well, let's go and buy a canal front on the Gold Coast for a million dollars. With a million and a half left over, we can invest it in shares, property, or we can help the kids out. So I, I do think it's an interesting social shift at the moment. And I, I think it's a nice position some people find themselves in is to be able to give give the next generation a hand into the market. We used to use the term go away money for employees. We didn't want, now it's getting rid of your kids, go away money. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> All right, John, exactly. thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. And that was John McGrath, who's the founder of McGrath Estate Agents. Now, it's time for an ad break. We'll be back in a moment and we'll be talking tax tips and that capital gains tax on granny flats. And now, a word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Now, here's Switzy. Okay, we're back from the ad break. And Paul, we always should throw in that with a Switzer Home Loan, the 3.89% is advertised rate, and it's also the comparison rate as well, isn't it? Yeah, comparison rate is really important because that takes into account um, potential fees, mm. and it's the one that uh, ASIC uh, requires people to talk about. So when you're looking at home loans or going online, mm. don't just check out the headline rate, check out the comparison rate. Yeah, and it can be a big difference in, as well. So let's now go to our favourite accountant, David Giles from MoneyWise and Switzer Accounts. <laughs> All right, Dave, how are you going? Good, thanks, Pete. Uh, mate, we, we wanted to get you on the line, and we've got Paul here, of course. Um, and we, I read in the uh, Fin Review over the weekend that uh, people who've got granny flats uh, and they might rent those granny flats out might get a bit of a surprise when they come to sell their home because there could be a capital gains tax. 
That's true. It's something that a lot of people forget about is when if you earn income on your own property, there's always a potential that you give rise to something that's called capital gains tax. And what's happening here is a lot of these people are building a granny flat out the back and it's occupying part of your land and you're gaining income from part of that land that your house sits on. And so where the ATO is coming at here is saying, well, look, you've built something, you've earned income on it, so now we want some tax on it when you come time to sell that in the future. So it's something that's it, it's not always going to apply if you, as long as you're not earning income on that granny flat, if you've just got you know, a granny. granny out the back. Yeah. But uh, if you're earning income like through Airbnb or any of the other services there, um, it's something that you've got to take into account as to whether it's a smart decision for you to make when you look at it in the long run over the time that you might own this granny flat and earn income to the potential liability that you'll have when you come time to sell your property. Okay, so Dave, just explain um, how that Mm. works in terms, I I think they use an apportionment basis to work out how much of your property then becomes liable for capital gains tax. So how does it work with you've got a granny flat and you're getting some income from, say, an external tenant? Yeah, that's basically where the ATO will look at it from a starting point will be they'll allocate a portion of the amount of land that that granny flat occupies. So it occupies, say, one-tenth of the land on your property, then one-tenth of the profit you make on the sale of your property uh, will be taxable for capital gains purposes. So it's something that we've got to we work through. So if you've already owned your house and you're making the decision now to put this granny flat on, you'll take a valuation of what your property is now, and then when you come time to sell, you'll look at, say, well, one-tenth of that additional profit from when the granny flat went on, there's, a, there's your tax that you're looking there on, on that. So it's a, it's a portion based on the yeah. area of the, of the granny flat over the total area of your whole property. Um, and, and so just to clarify, if you actually sort of, if you actually have your granny in there and you get no income, mm. that's okay? That's okay, as long as we can make sure that it's, part, that it's not considered a completely separate dwelling like, like a, a full house on the back. But if it is something that we can argue that it it's forms part of the, the living arrangements of your granny is that, it, say, it might not be fully plumbed in. It might be just a room with a little kitchenette on it, but it may not have a bathroom in it. So, you, you, the, so you, the resident may still need to come into the house to, to use the facilities of the house. So you'd say that it's just an, a small outbuilding of the, of the main house. But if it's right. a full-size um, like dwelling with kitchens, bathrooms, showers, toilets, things like that, there still potentially could be some issues there. Um, but you would just need a, that assessment would need to be made depending on the size okay. of the actual, uh, David, um, I don't know if you make this too messy, but let's just imagine mm. you know, your dear old granny passed away at age 105. Right? So it, it wasn't too tragic. She had a great life, 105. Um, and you've got this granny flat. Do you think some people might rush out and uh, tear out the bathroom <laughs> and make it look like it's <laughs> not their capital gains tax potential uh, item? Well, that's that's always a potential there. As uh, we don't recommend it, of course. What happens when you sell? Yeah. Uh, but yes, there is there is those issues because some of these granny flats these days, you know, you can be spending upwards of one hundred and fifty thousand dollars on yeah. them, and they can be quite substantial buildings. You, you so should have seen me. That, you should have seen me roll my eyes when he asked that to you. <laughs> Anyhow, I'm, I'm going to move it on because it sounds like this is getting a bit complicated. One last one, Paul, <laughs> and people have to understand this: if you've owned a house for twenty years, but you only had a granny flat for five years, it would only be 
the, the change in value in those last five years that would be affected, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, and, and that's correct. So it may not actually be a huge quantity of money, but it's yeah. just something that you've got to be aware of yeah. um, when you go into these things that there might be a potential liability on the horizon. Okay, okay. so obviously good advice to check your account there. If, if, you're plan- if you've got a mm. granny flat or yep. you're planning to build one or you've got one out and you're planning to rent it out, make sure you just think about some cap- any capital gains tax issues. Let's move on to the end of financial year, David, because, of course, uh, you might have missed the intro. I said it was five sleeps to go only. I know. <laughs> I guess you're getting excited, but uh, look for our oh. listeners. <laughs> let's not go there. For our, for our listeners, let's go through the most couple of basic tax tips. So, what did, uh, I just leave it at a very open question? What are the things you should do between now and June 30? Well, these now between now and June 30, the two main areas I like to focus on: income you can bring forward, uh, bring forward or push backwards, or any purchases we can bring forward. So, think that would be things like um, for purchases. Are there any uh, like education expenses, equipment purchases that you might be thinking that you might be wanting to buy on the next, say, three to four months? Mm-hmm. Can they be purchased this side of the financial year? That's why all the shops are running their end of financial year sales, is that it can make all the difference about when you make that claim is when you pay for those items. So and that would apply both, both business, to individuals and businesses, wouldn't it? Correct, yeah. So particularly those who are running like small business, so you could be a, a, just your, your normal sort of tradie, small business exemptions there. Um, anything under $20,000 we can instantly write off. So if you're buying you know, a large, large piece of equipment there that costs you $10,000, if you're a small, trade, small business, you could write that off instantly in the financial year of which you paid for that a piece of equipment. So those types of things can be quite significant to your, your, your average sort of mum and dad small business owner about when that timing comes mm. through. Now, on the smaller side of the scale, um, with your just your normal salary and wage clients, they obviously don't have the same ability to claim that level of deductions on equipment purchases. But things like um, self-education, um, other sorts of training courses, uh, memberships to various professional bodies, mm-hmm. um, and also things to think about is even to a degree superannuation. Uh, there's still time to make your superannuation contributions for this financial year. Okay, let, um, let's, let's come so back to super. Let's, let's just stick with the, the, mm. the, the, the personal ones first. So any other sort of deductions, mm. you know, things like gifts to, gifts to charities? Uh... Yeah, correct. It's all those types of things. So gifts to charities, that's there again. If you make it this side of the financial year, you'll be duck, deductible. So it creates that link between when you're spending the money to when you're receiving the tax benefit all that much closer. Because if you make it on the 2nd of July, you're not seeing the tax benefit for that spend for a whole other year. Whereas if you make it today, you'll potentially, if you do your tax return nice and early in the first few weeks of July, you'll see that tax benefit right up front. And you mentioned about uh, before about potentially delaying income. Just explain how that could work. Mm. So that would be potentially at this time of the year, um, there'd be not a lot where you'd be able to push back. So if you're a small business owner and you're a tradesman, you might be looking at maybe pushing some invoicing off until the 1st of July, so that way you won't get paid until the new financial year. That's probably where you've got the most amount of flexibility. If your bosses are thinking of maybe giving you, if you're lucky enough, getting a bonus for the end of the Mm -hmm. financial year, have a discussion with them whether it's better to do it now or in the next pay run, where it might get put into the next financial year. And it's at the the grander end of the scale, in your final negotiations uh, on your selling of a commercial property or a residential property, uh, investment property or something like that and you've got capital gains, if it's worthwhile pushing that final negotiation of the contract into the new financial year because uh, as capital gains and it applies also to sales of shares, if it's sold now, even if you don't receive the money to the new financial year, if the contract date is today, it's going to be included in this financial year. Whereas in the next financial year, um, 
it will be deemed the next year. So you've got a whole other year to get ready to pay the tax on that. So yeah. potentially, um, if just really thinking about a lot of our investors out there, if they've taken mm. any capital gains during the year, uh, now's a good time to look at their portfolio and maybe think about potentially any losses that they might want to take, question mark? Like owning Telstra. Exactly. So, but yeah, they'd have to... But, yeah, so if you've already got some gains that are absolutely locked in already and the, you've got some potential shares there or other investments that are just aren't going to move uh, in the foreseeable future and it's a case of that you, you think it's just the, the time to make the sale, uh, if it's going to raise a capital loss, now would be the time to consider that. So those losses can be offset the gains that you've already incurred for this financial year rather than selling it next year when if you're not planning on selling other investments that might have a gain, those losses will just get carried forward and not be as much benefit to you in this financial year. And, it, and it's all to do with the date of the contract. So potentially you've got till Friday, is that right? Correct, yeah. So if realistically Friday, so the contract is dated in this financial year is the mm -hmm. most important bit. Even if you receive a proceeds next financial year, that's no issues. The ATO will always take contract date as your date of sale. And what about the... Uh, I cut you off before. You're going to go through some important super deductions you can make this year. Mm. Yeah, so within superannuation, there's two main areas that I think is worth focusing on. Is One will be around your annual contributions uh, caps. So that's for your general $25,000 where you can still claim a tax deduction. So previously in other financial years, if you wanted to make a lump sum contribution into superannuation and claim a tax deduction, you generally had to be self-employed. But what changed in uh, not last budget but the budget before was that they allowed that same deduction regime to expand out to salary and wage earners. So if you're instance now earning a salary and wage and you've got a bit of spare cash built up, and you have a chat with your pay office and it looks like you've only made, say, $10,000 worth of contributions through your compulsory 9.5%, you've got an additional $15,000 that you could put into superannuation and claim a tax deduction against your normal working income this financial year. So it can be a great way to get yourself a bit of a tax deduction and then additional funds into super. So you do end up with quite a, a net saving. So the money will get taxed at 15% in your fund, but if you're earning, say, eighty-seven dollars or $90,000 a year, you could be paying potentially up to 37% tax rate in your personal name. So by making that extra $10,000 contribution, for argument's sake, you've saved yourself $3,700 worth of tax in your personal name for the want of only $1,500 tax in your super fund. So there's quite a, a significant savings there to be had to someone that's got that ability to put the money in in the next uh, five, four, four or five days. Now, now David... Um We'll go to an ad break. I want to hold you there. We'll come, do an ad. We'll come back and fire a few more questions uh, to you before we let you go. How's that? Thanks very much. Okay. So let's go to an ad break. We'll be back in a moment. And now, a word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate, and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Too many people spend money they earned to buy things they don't want to impress people that they don't like. So stick with Switzer and get rich! Where are me teeth? 
Okay, welcome back. And uh, we've got David Giles, uh, an accountant from Money Wise and Switzer Accountants. And he's answering a lot of questions around end of uh, uh, tax year. And also, we, we got on the subject of superannuation. He was telling us that you know, anyone can now make up to $25,000 uh, uh, contribution to their super fund. And David, I think a lot of people would be wondering, do you do it through your paymaster or do you do it directly to your fund? Well, these days now, we actually are able to do it directly to your fund, especially at this time of the year. So previously, under the old rules, you used to have to deduct it from your salary week by week out of your normal pay, and that was called the salary sacrifice uh, arrangement. That's still available to everybody, but what was introduced in the previous budget was an ability now just to put that contribution in. So if you've got a bit of inheritance money or a bit of money stashed away for that rainy day and you think you're not going to need it uh, right, right away, it putting that lump sum in and claiming that tax deduction, it's the same tax effect as if you'd salary sacrificed it during the year, mm. but you just get to put it all in one lump sum. So it's a really great system that previously wasn't there, and this is the first financial year that this new system has been introduced. I think there's one important rule as well, um, David, that mm. you do have to let your fund know that it's a tax-deductible exactly, contribution. Yes. Some of the funds have got forms, or you go online and do that, but... Uh, yeah. It just takes a little while yeah. to organise this. So there is, you do have time. Yeah. You don't have to do it straight away, but you will need to tell your fund before you do your tax yeah, return. It Correct. It needs to be done before your tax return's lodged um, because if you do it after your tax return's lodged, you may be disallowed that deduction. So it's important if you do do this, as, uh, as was being, Paul was mentioning, go down to your fund, get those paperwork. Instead, it's called a notice of intent to claim. And then that way, then, the super fund is aware that that's your plan, that you want to claim a tax deduction for that contribution. Uh, that's a really important one. Yeah, and I guess some there. people listening might be confused between uh, concessional contributions and non-concessional contributions. Paul? Well, of course, this is going to count as a concessional contribution. Yeah. And you still, mm. as, as David said at the outset, you're still subject to the $25,000 cap. Mm. Now, that applies to everybody who can make a super contribution. And, of course, that includes your employer's compulsory 9.5%. It includes, as David said, any amount that you salary sacrifice. And if there's any left over on top of that, up to 25000 that's the amount you can then claim a tax deduction for. But don't go over that $25,000. So, again, before you do it, probably worthwhile just making sure, checking with your employer what's actually gone into your fund this year from your employer, just to make sure you don't go over it. You also mentioned, Peter, non-concessional contributions. They're from your after-tax dollars, mm. and they're subject to a cap of $100,000. So no tax deduction, but you can still, if you've got other money left over and you want to get a lot of money into super, you can still access up to put up to $100,000 during the last financial year of what we call non-deductible contributions. So, yeah. And do it before Friday. Yeah, exactly. So is there, are there any other tax tips you think you'd like to share with us, David, before we say... Um, only one uh, other one on the uh, superannuation side of things is I suppose we've been mentioning about the, the larger contributions, but also down at the other end of the scale, the smaller contributions, we, we've got the co-contribution, which is what Paul was mentioning before, a a non-concessional contribution, so where you could put $1,000 into super, and if you're earning less than $36,000 a year from wages or um, wages income, you'll, the government will kick you in an extra $500 uh, for the benefit uh, into your super fund for that um, that contribution. So to, if you're earning less than 36000 from wages and you want to put $1,000 in, the government will give you an extra $500. But that contribution there again needs to be in the fund before the 30th of June. I think it's a great strategy for generous 
fathers, mothers, <laughs> grandparents of whatever description who've got working age you know, kids or grandchildren, mm. as long as they're earning some employment money and maybe they're a uni student or something, and if you're feeling a bit generous, uh, you might make the contribution of $1,000 on their behalf and the government tops it another $500. So mm. check the income limits, make sure they're earning some wages and uh, check the mm. rules on co-contribution. David, what about if you want to help your spouse out and, and say with her or his superannuation? Uh, yes, yeah, so there's also the spousal contributions. Um, that's, I think, off the top of my head, around about $3,000-odd um, that you can put in there on behalf of your spouse and claim a deduction uh, for that contribution. So it's not a huge amount of money, but it is something that is worth looking into if you um, can meet the criteria there. But, um, yeah, it's one that the strategy that we do use for a few of our, our, of our existing clients, the yep. spousal contribution. Uh, it doesn't suit every situation, but it's worth one checking into with one with your fund, um, whether they'll accept that spousal contribution if you're with both with the same fund, and um, it's certainly and then have a chat with the accountant about claiming, going about claiming that tax deduction. Okay, mate. Now, we've got a listener question from Max, and he says, I'm a writer, and I'd like to become a part-time um, paid travel blogger. <laughs> <laughs> Who wouldn't be? Yeah, on a travel, maybe. <laughs> yeah. What are the logistics with claiming the cost of travel as a work trip? For example... I have a family holiday coming up, but would like to integrate this with work by blogging about the trip. Is there a legal way I can claim this cost? Okay, so something along that type of lines is it's all going to come down to record keeping. So how the ATL will want you to handle this one will be making sure that you keep an itemised expense report for your own costs, not your family costs, but your own costs or your own airfares, a proportion of the accommodation, a proportion of all the other travel and, and expenses, um, then the ATO will want to see, well, how much income did you actually generate from this trip? So it's all great that you can claim these deductions, but you know, is the amount of income that's generated proportional to the amount of deduction that we're going to be claiming? Mm. And that's where the ATO will, will come and mainly put their focus on. So if you can at least identify the direct cause and effect, and that's what the ATO is looking for here, is expense incurred, income earned. And if we can show that, uh, just for the person who's earning that income, we can have a deduction there. So it's really going to be all about record keeping. Yeah, and so in the perfect world, David, someone like this really should have a letter of engagement from some media outlet that wants to Mm -hmm. publish the the material, Um, some kind of undertaking that a payment will follow once the, um, the said travel article is actually written and then published and then as long as the expenses are reasonable considering the expected payment you're probably on pretty safe waters exactly yes and 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 that's all the ato is really looking for is as i mentioned that cause and effect that they can see that there's income earned for expense for expense claimed and then that way then we can just make sure that everything's being matched up there and that's what the ato is looking for and it's also important if there's other forms of income as well so if it's unrelated so you might be doing some blogging income and then you might have just another side job doing office administration it's important to understand that those expenses for the blogging income will be deductible against the blogging income only they won't fall over into say your salary and wage job if you're working say office administration two days a week now this Uh, so it's important just to Make sure you match yeah. those up. Now, David, I must admit, the ATO, when it comes to travel, they're actually quite an interesting outfit, aren't they? Like, for example, if mm. I went overseas and I had an interview on, say, Monday and Tuesday in New York, 
and then another one on Friday and Saturday. Those days in between, I could claim, couldn't I? Because it'd be too expensive to come, go back home and fly back. They get, they, they do cut you a bit of slack, don't they? They do, yeah. So there again, it's, it's all about what's, what, you'd, what a reasonable person would expect something. Like going to New York, yes, the cost of flying back would be more than what the cost of a hotel for two days. So the ATO would say, yeah, that's no problem. But say if you were over there for two months and you had one meeting at the start and one meeting at the end, then in that situation the ATO would go, well, fair cop, we might give you a couple of days either side to get to and from the meetings, but uh, not much more than that. Okay, here's a, a, a question from a caller who actually you know, called into the office. If I receive, his name's Ken, if I receive a personal injury settlement, how much of it can I contribute to my super straight away? Oh, that's a bit of a, it's a bit of a doozy, that one. Mm. Um, so where you'd be looking at for the personal injury settlement is if it's a, a direct uh, payment payout, my recollection there is you'll have a couple of different caps that will be applicable. So you'll have your normal, if the insurance policy was originally in your own name, um, you'll have your normal non-concessional contributions cap, so up to $300,000 rolling forward three years. Yep. Um, and then it, I believe there is also a secondary cap there for if it's a total and permanent disability where you will be able to put some additional funds in there. But the actual cap amount off the top of my head does escape me at this moment, uh, but it's one that I'm more than happy to uh, give the caller a, a, a ring back on just to get that right figure there. But there is, yes, a secondary cap yeah. there that we can add some additional funds into. I think the caller's getting... There's, this is, there used to be a small provisions around this which have by and large gone, so... Mm. Uh, I think it's probably a good chance for the caller to ring back. This used to be something you could do easily in super, but it's, it's sort of not so much the case anymore. So, If you're claiming a policy inside your super fund, will it, will it then be um, banked into your super fund or it's, it's outside? It's, it's normally payable to the super fund, yeah. mm. and so that would, that's, that's allowed. Yeah. Um, but again, I think we'll have to take this on a case by case one, David. The, the rules here are, exactly, are very yeah. complex. It's, it's, so. it's a bit of a it's a bit of a, a bit of a complex one that one. But mm. certainly, if the policy was being held inside the fund, yes, the money would get paid straight into the fund, and then the member would be up to them in order to um, apply to the fund then to have that money released. But generally speaking, you'd try and make sure the conditions of release of the fund and the conditions of the claim on the insurance policy mm. should be fairly similar. Uh, these days in order to be able to get that money out to um, yeah. live Because yeah. you, you wouldn't necessarily get the fund unless there's obviously a reason for it, injury of some kind, and you'd pass the, those sort of stringent tests to get money out of super as a consequence, wouldn't you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So normally in the old days there used to be some issues there where uh, the terms and conditions of an insurance policy didn't quite line up with the terms and conditions of the uh, release of the super fund arrangements uh, but mostly these days they've all been pretty well lined up and it's only the odd occasion here and there where you get an old policy might have different might its conditions of payout might be more generous than what the ato's conditions of release are for superannuation monies all right david uh, as always thanks for joining us mate no problem thank you very much Pete paul that's David Thanks, Giles of Money Wise and Switzer Accountants. And if you've got any questions of that nature around tax or small business or whatever, you know, make sure you, you send them in to us because we'll get David on the line and he'll be our, our third voice, our third thinking person to try and give you the best possible answer. Well, Paul, that's the end of the show. Thanks for joining us as always. Thanks, Peter. Be back next week. Yeah, and if you've got any questions, don't forget, switzer.com.au. Send the questions. Thank you.